Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. Today I'm reading from my commentary on the book of Revelation. Today we're going to chapter 20. Chapter 20, the thousand years, and a bunch of other things in that chapter too. Let's start with verses 1 to 6. The flow of chronology has been restored to the Revelation at this point. There's no need for close-ups now, or set changes, as it were. Events flow one after the other. As Mystery Babylon is now gone, Jesus has now come, and the Antichrist and his spiritual sidekick are swimming in a lake of fire. Now comes an angel from heaven, in verse 1, to the pit that is featured so significantly in the story. In chapter 9, the angel given the key to the pit seems to be fallen and not in ordinary possession of such things. He's given the name Destroyer later in the chapter. We watched as that angel released to the world evil creatures that tormented men. Then we noted that there is in our day a man who once lived on the planet who is waiting to ascend from this same pit in the last days. We read that he will come and deceive the nations and be destroyed in that order. His destruction we've just witnessed, even as we chronicled his activities as deceiver. Now the pit is wanting another resident. This transfer is accomplished by an angel that seems to have been restored to the office of gatekeeper of the pit. Never again will Satan's forces have free access to earth. Satan himself still lives after the war and needs to be restrained until his services are called for again. The angel merely takes the prisoner and locks him in. We're not told how spirit beings are so restrained in a prison, but we know they are, and he is to be secured for 1,000 years. And as the man of sin stayed put for over 2,000 years, it is his binding coupled to Christ's direct rule that will make the millennium a time of wonder and joy and restoration. His career does resume for a short time, that's verse 7 now, but before that comes a description of the first resurrection and the wonderful rule of our Lord Jesus. The first resurrection, verses 4 to 6, it was Jesus himself who introduced the idea of two resurrections in John 5.29. He called them the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. All shall surely be raised from the dead. There is no choice about this. But some shall rise to die no more, to suffer no more, to be totally disconnected from sin forever. And their description, in part, is in verse 4 and causes thinking believers to tremble. Look at verse 4. John sees some thrones, and so did Daniel. In that vision, the prophet sees that just after the dominion of the little horn is taken away, the kingdom is given to the saints of the Most High. This term, saints, is the one used so often by the apostles of the Lord to refer to true believers in Jesus. And to these believers is committed judgment. They shall judge others. That's what Paul said, too, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, reminding us that the time will come when saints will judge the world and even those false angels. We must also remember, though, that we shall stand, all of us, before a judgment seat that Christ oversees. 
a preview of which is in Matthew 25, speaking of when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And so the saints, the believers, are raised to judge others. But John zeroes in on another group here that reminds us of Paul's statement in Philippians 1.29, if we suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with him. This group is the martyrs. We may have already seen them back in chapter 7, arrayed in white robes. They're described as those who refused to worship the beast, whether by image or mark. They had therefore been beheaded. You say, how widespread is that practice today? Does it exist at all? Oh, yes, it does. Saudi Arabia, in particular, leans toward this and stoning as its primary methods of doing away with evildoers. A couple more Muslim countries and one African also use this method, but very scarcely. So is Islam on its way to ascendancy? Will Islamic rule with its beheadings be the means of many believers going to be with Jesus? Saints and martyrs together reign with Christ here. Who among us is following Jesus in this way today? Willing to suffer and give our lives away totally. Muslims do it regularly in response to a lie. Are we ready to suffer for the truth? One thousand years is now mentioned again in verses four to six. It's the time of the binding of Satan and the time of the reign of the saints. Let no one call this a figurative number when it's used so often in this chapter. I believe it is the earth's seventh day, the the Sabbath rest of a planet that worked its way to judgment. After six long 1,000-year periods of man's rule, we shall see how the planet ought to have been governed in its final day. There are the unsaved dead still to be dealt with. That's in verses 5 to 6. Theirs is the resurrection of damnation, and their fate is discussed in verse 12. Meanwhile, the millennium is beginning and will blossom more year after year. This is the time that the prophets saw, and maybe even a little more. Holy and blessed saints rule with Jesus. They have new bodies, while the rest of the planet continues in their old ones. It's here that a flood of prophecies enter in to let us know exactly what life will be like in that day. In July of 2001, I was intensely involved in a study of the kingdom of God. That kingdom is spiritual, but also physical. That kingdom is in the Old Testament and in the New, and now in the Spirit. But our future is a literal kingdom with a literal king from the line of David sitting on a literal throne in Jerusalem. In the process of studying our glorious future, I was able to piece together a profile of that wonderful time, and I'm including here some appropriate pages from that book. It's called The Kingdom Handbook, if you want the whole thing. The horrid day of judgment ends. The new day dawns. The Lord of hosts begins his glorious reign. The desert rejoices. The Lord arises. Restoration is the work of the coming centuries. There is great deliverance. The past is forgotten. We shall now discuss the elements of this new day. First, the 1,000 years. With everyone talking about a millennium, you would think that the world is, that, that word is sprinkled all over the Bible. In fact, you, you never find it. <laughs> the prophets describe the age while we later identify, we identify it now as the 1,000 years. Jesus ignores such a time frame altogether. 
Not until Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is there a hint in the New Testament that something comes between our day and the eternal one. In chapter 15, 20 to 28, his classic delineation of the resurrections. Christ is resurrected first. Then come Christ's people. And then the end, when Jesus delivers the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom to the Father. The explanation of the kingdom is that time when Jesus shall reign, destroying one enemy after the other, much like David did in his day. David is even associated with this millennial reign by prophetic greats Jeremiah, uh, the, the great and Ezekiel. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And yes, death and dying are actually part of this final reign. But it's not until John, the last Bible writer, in one of his last chapters where we are right now, that the number 1,000 is attached to the kingdom as a time limit. Putting it all together, we have to go back into the text and realize that there is a special time on earth for the reign of Jesus and an ensuing time for the reign of the Father on a new earth. This can get so tricky at times that some researchers have preferred to write off a literal millennium altogether. I feel this is dangerous. Sets a man up to be rebuked by the Lord for even the smallest aberration from the revealed truth will earn such rebukes. Knowledge of the 1,000 years causes us to go back and insert it into passages we had before considered simple and which were taught in simplicity to give an overall picture of the truth being communicated. Jesus' talk of the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation in John 5 must be understood as separated. This style is in keeping with the Old Testament prophets who saw the first and second coming of Christ as nearly one event, hardly mentioning the church age in between. Second Peter 3 says that it's in the day of the Lord that the heavens pass away and everything is burned up and we look for a new heavens and earth. There's a thousand years in that statement. Peter sums it up very neatly. Even Daniel saw that many who sleep bodily in the dust uh, will awake in that day, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. But John is the one who puts those resurrection times 1,000 years apart. Now, where is this? In a classic passage of the return and victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very place of his touchdown is recorded. Zechariah, in chapter 14, gives in vivid detail the geography of our future. He says that the day of the Lord is coming. He repeats the oft-spoken theme that all nations will be gathered to battle against Jerusalem. There'll be another captivity. After horrific plagues spoken of by other prophets, the Lord himself descends and his feet touch the very Mount of Olives where he had ascended so long before. The impact of that landing will split the Mount in two, allowing a place for those who need to, to flee. Then there are the signs in the heavens. The river of life is opened. And the Lord becomes king over all the earth. But from Jerusalem, at that time, 
adds Jeremiah, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. All the nations shall be gathered to it. They will no longer walk after the stubbornness of their evil heart. The Gentiles will be gathered to the capital city of the earth, the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is the logical outcome of the New Covenant, the expanded Israel which takes in whosoever will, Jew and Gentile alike. She is the reigning capital of the new earth, but will reign over the kingdoms of the world that have real names that we recognize. The host of scriptures that point out Jerusalem as the center of this world's future begins with the Psalms. It says, Yet have I set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The hill theme is consistent throughout. You can look at Psalm 24 and Revelation 21 on the new earth. The gates of Psalm 24 are also found in Revelation 21. Psalm 48 mentions the city of our God and the holy mountain thereof. Psalm 99 invites us to worship at his holy hill. And so Psalm 132. Then comes Isaiah talking about a mountain that shall be established on top of the mountains to which all nations shall flow. That's in Isaiah 25 and 26 and 35 and 40 and 52 and 66. Then there's Ezekiel, who also mentions a holy mountain. And in chapter 40, verse 2, he himself is taken to a very high mountain to see the structure of a city and a special house inside of it. And in, verse, in chapter 43, he sees the eastern gate, the inner court, the place of God's throne, where he says, I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Now, Revelation 21, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, likewise talks of the tabernacle or dwelling place of God being with man. I believe the same basic city will be visible at both times, millennium and after. I believe Ezekiel's vision refers to the millennium because of his mention of a temple which is absent in the new earth city and his insistence on the literal David being present to reign under Christ. Ezekiel is given a vision of the rest of the Holy Land of those days, roughly the size of David's old kingdom, with Jerusalem being 10 to 12 miles in every direction, according to Revelation. The Revelation city, like Ezekiel's, has high walls, three gates on each side, with tribal names. There are healing waters and trees. One can imagine the need for the healing of the nations after the pollution of what seems to be a nuclear war on the planet. Ezekiel tells us further that the whole area surrounding the mountaintop is holy. No foreigners, no uncircumcised allowed in. There's a special place for the prince and the Lord and for priests. Is New Jerusalem identifiable by both John and Ezekiel? Ezekiel's city has a temple, but not John's. One has day and night, not the other. I believe Jerusalem, which is above, is the same city throughout, with variations that fit the situation. Ezekiel saw her in her millennial phase. John saw her in the new earth phase. Right now, she's in her heavenly preparation phase. But the streets of gold are still there, along with the tree of life, the water of life, and whatever else is needed to make a heavenly city. Both John and Ezekiel saw these features. What a wonderful future is ours. Who is there? It may be a shock to some to realize that there are several categories of persons who will be present on that great day of the Lord. First and foremost, of course, Jesus himself. 
Yes, the Father is always present when Jesus is here, but these 1,000 years will be especially the sons, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Only at the end of this kingdom does the Son somehow give everything to the Father. This is a mystery somewhat beyond us now, but we'll have a thousand years to learn how it's going to happen. Jesus will be accompanied by the angels. And so it says in every passage, talking of his coming. And then there's the holy people. They're not only on the earth, but on the hill, in the city. Psalm 24 takes on a new light as we see a literal hill before us, allowed to be ascended by only a literal people with clean hands and a pure heart, the generation of those who seek his face. It brings us to Revelation 21, talking of the same city in a new world, telling us that nothing that defiles will ever enter that place, only those who are in the Lamb's book of life. These are people that do his commandments, and therefore have right to the tree of life, and to enter at will into that city. Daniel is told that a blessed group of people will wait and come to the 1,335 days. In other words, the end of the tribulation period. These are the ones who make it all the way. They're given special honor for special endurance. Now, who among us is worthy of this position? We who must have our comforts and our pleasures and our distractions. And then there are the 144,000, a Jewish remnant. I start tracing uh, these people uh, in in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch, Jesus, shall be beautiful, it says, the fruit of the earth excellent for those of Israel who have escaped. 1.9 talks about how the Lord in his mercy left us a very small remnant. If not, it would be an annihilation like Sodom. Isn't that what Jesus said? Except those days be shortened, but for the elect's sake they shall be shortened. Is the Jewish remnant in mind here? There they are again in, in chapter 10. The remnant of Israel, this is Isaiah, will never again depend on him who defeated them but will depend on the Lord. Saved Jews, at the end of all things, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them will return. An escaping remnant is likewise mentioned in 37 and 66 of Isaiah. In that last passage, the escapees are sent out to the nations to declare his glory to the Gentiles. They shall actually bring people physically to the city of God in that day. A rescued remnant used to preach for Messiah during the reign. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's no connection between the 144,000 and the preaching of the gospel. Isaiah might differ with me on that one. So study the whole thing. Be sure you have the right answer. Don't leave out Ezekiel. Yet I will leave a remnant, he says, so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the countries. Those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. Follow that line of thought. What about Old Testament saints? Are they a part of this first resurrection and this glorious reign in the city? Of course. Theirs was the first call. And Those men who grasped the promises of God are the original elect to whom the kingdom was given. 
They were not given the Spirit in the measure given to his church, but the promises are theirs. Ezekiel spells out an explanation of the rising of the dry bones. God says, I will open your graves, and I will cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Well, get ready for it. This is going to be a very Jewish kingdom. Not only will Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and David be there, but Jesus promised that his own Jewish apostles will sit on 12 thrones judging the kingdom. Paul says that Old Testament saints did not receive the promise in their day, but only because God was waiting on the rest of us to come in. Don't rule out the Jew. It's his kingdom first, then yours. Nevertheless, properly grafted Gentiles will be fully operational in that wonderful land of Emmanuel. There the king and the queen rule. The queen, his bride, is you in Christ. Notice how the last, the Gentiles, become first in receiving the work of the Spirit in its fullness in this church age, while the first, the Jews, will not receive that until they're resurrected. Well, there are kings... And their kingdoms outside the city, let's go there for a while, for the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. They will somehow bring glory to the city. This reality demands a closer look and a discernment to avoid blurring the two entities. We begin with Daniel, who in chapter 2 explains the king's dream in terms of the nations to follow him and even their end-time disposition. In 34 and 35 of Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, verses 34 and 35 of chapter 2, is said to have uh, seen a stone cut without hands, striking the image of the vision on its feet, representing end-time nations. At this time, all the elements of the statue disintegrate, and the stone, it becomes a great mountain and fills the world. For at the end of history, a bloody end, mind you, the God of heaven sets up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces and consume all these nations. In Daniel 7, his angel tells us that after the final kingdom is destroyed, and we believe this to be revived Rome, ruled by the man of sin, the other kingdoms, the rest of the world, I take it, though their dominion is taken away, their lives are prolonged. Gentile nations are allowed to enter without leadership into the millennium. The father tells the son to ask him, and he will give him the nations for his inheritance and the ends of the earth for his possession. He is, in fact, to rule these nations with a rod of iron. That's why nations of today are warned in Psalm 2 to get on God's good side, especially should nations be a friend to Israel. Though Israel will be punished by God through Gentile nations, who are so disposed to hate her anyway, those nations will in turn be punished for touching her. Since just about every nation hates Israel in our day, the conflagration at the end will be nearly universal. The mention of the rod of iron lets us know that the Gentile nations, though subservient to Christ, and yes, without Satan's temptations, as he will be bound for the duration, are still not heart followers of Jesus. Many of these citizens 
we know not how many, yet they are as the sand of the sea, it says, will, once given the satanic nod at the end of the 1,000 years, turn against Christ and be damned forever. Isaiah has interesting insights about the Gentiles of this day. The sons, for they shall give birth, of the foreigner, Gentile nation, who joins himself to the Lord of his own will, will be allowed to come to the mountain where Jesus and his holy people reside. God comments that not only the outcasts of Israel, but others will be gathered to him in that day. The difference in people groups is brought out again in Isaiah 61. It's indicated that the foreigner will be servant to the people of God, who will be a special priesthood. The saved people will eat the riches of the Gentiles. Honor will be given to God's people. That's why we must never seek honor now. The classic passage in Isaiah 2 is not for us, but for those special Gentiles allowed to live at this time. All nations will flow to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Many will come and say, let us go to the house of the Lord. He will teach us. We will walk in his paths. He shall then judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Notice it is many, not all. The invitation to come will be ignored even still by some, but these folks will not be in any way a threat to the security of the age. Jesus will rebuke them, and they will straighten up or else. All power will be in Jerusalem, Isaiah later adds in 26, that when God's judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Oh yes, there were many other masters in centuries past, even trying to rule in the name of Jesus, but they and their memory are perished. Out of Jerusalem will be sent those who will go to all the Gentiles and attempt to bring them to the city, Isaiah 66. Those who come will fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 14, where it says that all who are left of the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. And if they do not go up, there will be no rain on their land. Some, it seems, hold out to the end. The Gog-Magog Confederation of Ezekiel is perhaps the northern army of Joel II. It is this slaughtered army that is being buried for seven months. The remnant is pushed back to a barren and desolate land, as Siberia, for example. Here, the hatred for Jesus Christ, it seems, is allowed to fester. And in the very last of days, at the end of 1,000 years, this nation will once more be instrumental in an assault against God's priorities. Individual nations are outlined in Isaiah 19 and 27. Assyria, that we see as extinct today, will be in most favored status in that day, along with Egypt, my people. Though, according to Joel 3, Egypt will at first be a desolation, along with most of the world. Egypt is differentiated, of course, in this passage from Israel, who is called my inheritance. These nations will be willingly, for the most part, subservient to the kingdom people. Psalm 47 and 8 uh, 3 and 8, uh, foresee a time when God will subdue the peoples under us, sitting on his holy throne, reigning over the nations. Psalm 48 is a similar picture of the elevated Jerusalem having become the joy and no longer the burden of the whole earth, because it is the city of the great king. God is in her palaces now. Terrified kings are seen passing by and marveling 
And so in, in Psalm 72:11, and in the oft-quoted Psalm 110, where the Lord says to the Lord Jesus to rule in the midst of his enemies. These are the conquered Gentile nations whose leaders have already been destroyed. Something like post-war Germany without Hitler. Terrified, conforming. For, verses 5 and 6, he shall judge among the nations and execute the heads of many countries. Though conquering and serving, Zechariah puts the best face on it when he says in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that he is coming to dwell in our midst, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. They shall become my people. Also, could it be there are sorcerers, sexually immoral murderers, the crop of evil that Satan will use at the end of 1,000 years to lead a rebellion against that city after he goes on a whirlwind campaign around the earth to deceive the nations again. All this in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. And here dies the theory that says all unbelievers are dead until the second resurrection and that all the saints are with Christ in heaven for that thousand years. No, not at all. What about the lifestyle then? What will life on earth be like during the millennium? Let's allow several men to give us their vision of things, to add to the picture that we have already drawn. Solomon tells us of a time of universal righteousness, justice for the poor, peace, no oppression. The needy will be delivered by crying out. Isaiah describes a constant flow of people to Jerusalem, all wanting to know the ways of the Lord. No more war. Agriculture will flourish. The house of the Lord will be the centerpiece of the world. They'll be ruled by the rod. The wicked will be killed. Animals will get along. Children will be safe. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. A place of constant praise. Fruit everywhere supplied by Israel. All the blind will see. All the deaf will hear. All the lame will leap. All the dumb will speak. The highway of holiness will be opened. Everlasting joy for the ransomed of the Lord. No sorrow, not even sighing. All children taught by the Lord. They shall have great peace. Nature in harmony, no briars. Burnt offerings restored. God's house, a house of prayer for all nations. The abundance of the sea will be ours. The wealth of the Gentiles. People will come by air and water to bring gifts to God. And so Jerusalem's gates will be open day and night. And nations that refuse this honor to the Lord shall perish. And yet no violence in the land, for matters will be dealt with immediately, quickly. The sun will not be our light now. Perhaps a little one shall become a thousand, uh, a new nation. Birth and death will continue. You'll be considered married, not forsaken, a bride adorned for her husband. Weekly and monthly worship, but able also to see a ghastly reminder of what sin will do. Jeremiah says Israel is to be rebuilt, to be a people of the dance, a people of vines, abundance. Some of the measurements of that city are even mentioned. Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, we find that we'll be building houses, planting vineyards, being secure. Animals will be tamed. People will live in safety. These are especially promises to Israel. But I believe the world will join in this abundance. The trees will be abundant, no, no longer a prey to the nations. A garden of renown is to be there, no famine. You'll loathe yourselves as you remember your evil ways. 
The ruins shall be rebuilt. I will do it. You will pray to me about it. First seven months, the burial of Gog, a type of employment, a description of the new city and new temple and sacrifices there, the new altar, the new priesthood, as Revelation 20 mentions that those of the first resurrection will be priests to God. The Sabbath and the new moon will be observed along with the other feast days. Joel says, never shame again to the people of God. No aliens will pass through Jerusalem again. Much wine and milk and water. Amos, waste cities will be rebuilt and inhabited. Vineyards and gardens never pulled up again. Obadiah, deliverance and holiness coming. Micah, so many sheep that they'll make a loud noise led by the Lord and their king. He's great to the ends of the earth. He feeds his flock. Zephaniah, the lame will be saved and those driven out appointed to fame and praise. Zechariah waxes eloquent. He has a lot. Messiah shall build the temple. He shall rule on his throne and be a priest also. Those far away shall likewise build the temple. Old and young will sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Very old. The vine and the ground shall prosper. Fast to be kept at certain times. Inhabitants of one city shall go to another and say, Let's go pray and seek the Lord. Many strong nations shall come to seek the Lord in Jerusalem. Ten Gentiles of ten nations will grab a Jew and say, Let us go with you. We've heard that God is with you. At the beginning, great mourning as Jews realize who they have rejected. Fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Prophets not accepted. No need to prophesy now that the Lord is here. Living waters flow from Jerusalem. The Lord is king over all the earth. Specific geographical notes. Nations that came against Israel. Remainders shall, uh, shall worship the Lord in person from year to year. No, and if you don't go, no rain. Holiness to the Lord will be the universal theme. That's what it will be like in that new world. As far as the throne that's mentioned so often, the center of the kingdom of God has always been the throne. Your, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Isaiah says that the government of this whole world will be on the shoulders of the Son, who is the Father. Of the increase of that government and of peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it from that time forward even forever. And so the eternal throne comes to earth, meshing with the throne of David and takes its forward thrust into eternity from there. In Ezekiel 43, the Lord says to Ezekiel that the millennial temple foreseen by the prophet is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of Israel forever. Daniel 7 makes mention of thrones, showing us the uniqueness of the reign of Christ as opposed to the reign of the Father to follow. Perhaps included here is the idea of the prince, David, not to mention the twelve thrones of the apostles. A lot of reigning going on, R-E-I-G-N, in the new city, but no question as to who is in charge like, like today. Zechariah 6 mentions the throne of the branch, Zechariah's code name for Jesus. Hebrews 8 gives us the present situation of the throne in heaven with the, the Son at the right hand of the Father. And in Revelation 3, Jesus is sitting down with the Father in his throne as we are to sit with the Son in his throne. 
Jesus' throne is the throne of David that covers all things human. Jesus sits on the throne, heir apparent of all humanity. But he also sits in the Father's throne, for he is God and over all things. All, a lot of verses in Revelation, I won't tell all of them, refer to the throne. From chapter 4 of Revelation, the Lamb and the throne are inseparable. The rule of God through Christ with us is thus well established. And that's uh, just a brief look at God's special day. Uh, There's more. I won't go into any more of that. The millennium will end. We'll talk about that next time when we come together. I do hope that you will get the word out about these uh, audios and the book. I do want people to hear these messages. Uh, The time is coming, perhaps very soon. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we will talk again real soon. Bye-bye.